This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, I'm excited this morning. We have a guest preacher. Josh Loomis is married to Kayla. They are both here. They brought a baby. The baby's inside of Kayla still, but we're excited about that. And I had this, we didn't plan it this way, but God's good to do this. Uh, I had the privilege, uh, oh, I don't know, six, nine months ago, something like that now, of being part of a team that was evaluating Josh's fitness for church planting. And so it's fitting on our 67th anniversary, as we remember when this church was planted, that we have another brother come and preach to us the word who feels led to plant another church. I, I tell people this all the time. We might feel like this place has just always been here, but it wasn't. Brothers and sisters in Christ stepped out in faith. Leaders stepped out in faith. People gave. People uh, did all kinds of generous things to make this church happen. And that's why I'm so passionate to see other churches planted and to support other church uh, planters. And so I had the privilege of evaluating Josh, particularly in the area of his preaching. He's very gifted in that area. And I thought at that time, let's have him come and preach for us and to us. Let's learn from him and also let's support him in his work of church planting and his calling and affirm that in him. And so this is a great morning to do that. He's going to come up, he'll share a little bit about that, and then he's going to preach to us the word. So would you just give a warm welcome through a round of applause to our brother Josh Loomis. Josh, brother, come and share. Good morning. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, As Pastor Adam said, my name is Josh. Uh, It's my wife, Kayla. We're expecting our daughter uh, at the end of March, uh, so we're very excited about that. I'm in my final semester at TEDS, uh, doing the the MDiv degree, and like Adam said, we are preparing to plant a church. Uh, We feel the Lord has called us to the Champaign-Urbana area. Um, Currently, there is no free church in the Champaign area. There was a free church there, uh, closed down in 2018, uh, and the denomination asked my wife and I to to pray about uh, planting there. Before we came to TEDS, uh, both of us worked with crew uh, in Asia. We lived internationally and uh, worked with college students. So when we were asked to consider Champagne, uh, that that seemed like a really good fit uh, for our heart, for college students, for our heart, for preaching the word and seeing a church come to life. Uh, so we engaged in um, the, the journey to consider church planting. Uh, additionally, um, the, the language that we, we learned, uh, Chinese, there, there are many Chinese speakers in the Champaign area, uh, so it's an extra benefit. Uh, and, and just great to see how the Lord has, has crafted all of those um, areas that, that we feel called to uh, in that particular place. So I'm grateful for the support of our Savior and for Adam to, to invite me here. As we prepare to go, uh, we, we plan to move in August of this year down to the area. Uh, we'll, we'll spend probably uh, a year to two years uh, getting to know the community, getting plugged into uh, a church there who has agreed to uh, allow me opportunities to, to get to know the, the congregants before we launch our church. Um, and in that process, uh, we have the task of raising up a team of people, of partners, uh, to both pray for us and to financially support the church plant as we uh, have uh, financial needs. Um, so, 
after the service, if you feel like you want to be a part of what God is doing in Champaign-Urbana in the future, I would love to, we would love to talk to you, uh, tell you more about our vision for the church. Uh, we'll also be sending out uh, my email um, next week uh, if, if you're interested in praying for us, in giving a gift, uh, in uh, signing up to, to be a monthly partner. Uh, we would just be absolutely blessed uh, to see the gospel come to, to Champaign-Urbana because there's such a, a unique opportunity, I, I think, with the University of Illinois there. Uh, 10,000 new students come there every year, uh, 10,000 people who need to hear the gospel. So that's just our heart, and uh, like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, as a, a future church planter, something that I have learned more and more is just the absolute need for dependence on the Lord and for a deep humility in my own spirit. So this morning, I'm going to be preaching from a text, and we're going to be talking about emulating the humility of Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us right now. Pray that you would give me the words to say, and I pray that you would illuminate your scriptures for all of us so that we might worship you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. An orchestra conductor was once asked, what is the most difficult position to fill in the orchestra? After pausing for a moment to think, he responded, second violin. Intrigued, the interviewer asked why, having expected a less popular instrument than the violin. The conductor responded by saying, you see, there are many talented violinists, but there is rarely a talented violinist that is willing to play the supporting parts for first violin. Sooner or later, the second violinist grows tired of playing the harmony and wants to move to the melodious spotlight of the first violin. How many of you would be content playing the second violin? How many of us are satisfied with playing a background part, serving a role that allows other people to shine? Now, not all of us like being up front or in the spotlight, but I imagine that all of us like being acknowledged for our service, to feel appreciated. Don't all of us want to believe that we are the main character in our story, the one with main character energy, the one who overcomes the task and receives the glory? I know that I want to believe that. But is that the mindset that we're called to as Christians? Is that the mindset that we see in Jesus Christ? The Bible calls Christians to live with a different mindset, one of humility, which sees us content playing the second violin. In our passage today, Paul calls his audience to be humble and points them towards the ultimate example of humility. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 11. Let's read Paul's word to the Philippians. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I would like you to walk away with this morning is this. To exercise humility by counting others as more significant than yourself, just as Christ did. Our passage can be broken down into three sections. First, Paul gives us an exhortation in verses 1 through 4 to exercise humility. Then Paul points to an example verses 5 through 8, which is the mind of Christ. And then finally, Paul shows us the result in verses 9 through 11, which is exaltation. Let's walk through the text together and hear Paul's message for Christ's church. As we begin, though, I'd like to establish some of the context of the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul is writing to Philippi, which is a city that's located in modern-day Macedonia. Paul was part of starting that church in Acts chapter 16. The colony of Philippi is made up of many individuals who are retired military officers, citizens of Rome, people who in that day were a big deal as far as the Roman Empire is concerned. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have had experience with career military officers, but many of them are very proud of their service, rightly so. My grandfather made his career as a naval officer, and he still has a fierce pride when it comes to the armed forces. Now, that's not inherently wrong, but it could be one of the reasons that Paul is calling the Philippians to exercise humility. Paul is writing to them from prison in order to encourage their faith, to encourage them to rejoice in their circumstances. Right before our passage this morning, Paul urges his audience in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, to let your manner be worthy of the gospel. Paul urges them 
to be unified in one mind and one spirit as a manifestation of living a life worthy of the gospel. Our passage today continues that line of thought and its call for the Philippians to emulate humility, an aspect of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. With that context in mind, let's turn to the first part of our passage, the exhortation. Let's reread Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul begins in verse 1 with a rhetorical question. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, which precedes the command that comes in verse 2. Now, is Paul asking this question in order to allow the Philippians to have an excuse to not follow his command? Well, I don't think so. You see, for those who are in Christ, for you and I, there is absolutely encouragement, love, participation in the Spirit, and affection. So instead, this question is used to bring emphasis on the, on, upon the following command. If we as believers experience that comfort, encouragement, and participation, how much more should we strive for humility as well? So the command comes in verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now let's pause. What does it look like to have the same mind and the same love in full accord? Can you picture a group of people who are unified in the same thought, the same convictions, and the same passionate love for a particular cause in every way? I have to be honest, church. I have a hard time imagining what that looks like. Because it's so rare in our day. We hear it over and over again. Our world is more divided than ever. The church is no exception. With Christians disagreeing about theology, about politics, about social justice issues. And they are adamant that they are correct. And that others who think differently than them are wrong. And yet, the command in this passage is to make Paul's joy complete by having the same mind. Could it be that the disunity and division in our world is in part caused by a lack of humility? Could it be that the church has failed to follow Paul's command to be unified? Paul continues to clarify how this unity might be achieved in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to others' interests and not just your own. So what is humility? We all might have different definitions or images of what humility might look like. Oxford Dictionary defines humility as a modest or low view of one's own importance. Now, this doesn't mean that you dislike yourself or that you wish you were different, but it is counter to the common idea of our day and age that I am the center of the universe, that I am playing the melody, that I am the main character of my story. Now, there can be a danger for some of us who don't like to be in the spotlight, right? You hear this and you say, well, that's not a problem for me. For those of us who value building others up, we continue to say, wow, look at what I have accomplished by empowering others. There's no way that person would be where they're at without my guidance, without my support or my help. We see that's not true humility either because you're still looking to glorify yourself, to make a name for yourself, even if it's not in front of others. Here's another way of thinking about humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. We see this in our passage, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit but count others as more significant than yourselves. Well, wait a minute. Paul doesn't mean that, does he? He doesn't mean that I should view my brother or sister across the aisle as more important than myself. Or even more extreme. Paul doesn't mean that we should view our neighbor as more significant than ourselves. The one that isn't even a Christian and doesn't hold the same worldview as I do. What if that's exactly what Christians are called to? Can you imagine a unified church who does not allow secondary issues to divide them? What would it look like if in a conversation with your coworker who's ranting about the current political situation, for you to take a deep breath, And instead of interjecting with your opposing viewpoint, you listen to him or her, only offering your opinion if they ask you for it, which he very well might never ask for. A great exercise of humility is to be the last person who gives their opinion about a particular subject, choosing to listen to others demonstrating that you view them as more significant than yourself. Humbling ourselves may mean that we come to terms with being a secondary character in our story, acknowledging that God is ultimately the main character in all of our lives, that our lives' purpose is not finding fulfillment in this life, not making a name for ourselves, but that the chief end of man is glorifying God.
We have been designed to play the harmony part of the second violin to God's melody. Now, let's be clear. This doesn't mean that you need to affirm your non-believing friend's worldview that minimizes the Lord or that you don't rebuke your brother in Christ because you don't want to impede on their opinion. There is room for disagreement, for debate, and for correction. But what does that look like in practice? Well, I think a good start is to examine your motivation before you engage with someone in a disagreement. Am I engaging in this argument, this conversation, because I want to demonstrate my prowess, my superior opinion, my expertise on this matter? Even if it's a matter concerning the faith, am I arguing with this non-believer in order to show the superiority of my position or the foolishness of their position? And let me tell you, putting this in practice is difficult. This requires us to develop our muscles of humility intentionally and consistently. So that before we engage in an argument, before we allow our emotions to take over, whether in person or on social media, we pause. Say, is this for my glory? Or is it for God's glory? And if, after praying about it, you feel your motivation is pure, that you truly want to glorify God, by sharing the truth of the gospel with your coworker, or to rebuke your sister in Christ who's living in sin, then you should faithfully and gently approach that person. But in regards to that neighbor who's not a believer, what if on your next free weekend, instead of thinking, how am I going to relax with my free time? You instead said, I'm going to shovel my neighbor's driveway and then invite her over for dinner. Maybe that neighbor will think to themselves, wow, well, I wouldn't have expected that. I wonder why they did that. Now it's our temptation to then go and tell our friends, hey, look at this great thing I did for my neighbor. It's our human nature to say, hey, Hear how great this solo was. Look at how well I represented Christ. But completing Paul's joy may look like telling no one what you did. Because you're not interested in the compliments that you might receive for your own sake. But instead, you're interested in truly serving that person for God's glory. Now, this may seem really hard. And don't get me wrong, it is hard. But thankfully, Paul points the Philippians to the example of Christ and tells them to have the mindset of Christ. This is our second point the example. Let's reread verses five through eight. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 5, Paul provides a second command. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's pretty clear that he's referring to the mind of humility that's described in the verses above. And verse 5 specifies that the mind of humility is theirs in Christ. So it's not by our own strength that we can value others as more significant than ourselves. But in fact, through our union with Christ, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to have this mindset. Which means that the more that we have union with Christ, the more practiced we become in walking in the Spirit, the easier having a mindset of humility becomes for us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of counting others as more significant than himself. In verses 6 through 8, we have a comparison, a contrast between the form of God that Jesus gave up and the form of a servant, which Jesus took on. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is 100% God, voluntarily took on flesh in the incarnation. The text says that he emptied himself. Now, this doesn't mean that when Jesus came to earth, that he gave up his divinity. On the contrary, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped during his life on earth. It's not that he was unable to exercise his divine attributes, but instead that he chose not to in order to carry out the task that was given to him by the Father. This emptying is similar to when my brother and I would wrestle my dad when we were in elementary school. We would fight him in our living room, and he would fight back, sometimes tossing us gently onto the couch. Of course, not using his full strength as an adult. Sometimes, being the loving father that he was, he even allowed us to win against him. Now, nobody watching this wrestling match would say, wow, your dad can't even beat you guys in a fight. Of course not. They know what's going on here. And in a similar vein, Jesus chooses to not use his full capabilities while he has taken on the form of a servant. Having taken the form of a servant, Jesus lived a sinless life. And even though he did not deserve death, he humbled himself in obedience to God the Father to the point of death on a cross. You see, in the Roman context, Crucifixion was reserved for non-citizens, for slaves, 
for thieves and criminals. The audience in Philippi that were citizens of Rome would have never been subjected to crucifixion. So Jesus not only humbled himself to death, but he willingly embraced the most humiliating death possible on display for all to see. How could our God have done such a thing? In Roman mythology, the gods don't bleed, let alone die. What kind of God is this who is able to be killed? Well, that's precisely what makes the God of the Bible so unique. Because I assure you that Jesus was not thinking of himself. He did not have his own well-being in mind when he was sweating blood in the garden, crying out, not my will, but yours be done. He wasn't thinking of himself when sinful men drove nails through his hands and his feet. When his disciples all abandoned him and he was being mocked, spit on, and ridiculed, he knew full well that with one word, he could call down a legion of angels and save himself. But he didn't. You see, Jesus had someone else in mind. He was thinking of Adam, of Jerry, of Clarissa, of Josh. Because he knew that we were incapable of saving ourselves. He knew that none of us, no matter how hard we tried, could save ourselves. So he subjected himself to the most humiliating death possible in order that we might have life, in order that you and I might have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. Now that type of humility that Paul points to might sound bleak to you. But you see, that's not the end of the story. Not only could the grave not hold Jesus, but Jesus was and will be exalted. This brings us to our final point, the result of humility. Let's reread these verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The therefore in verse 9 points back to what we have just unpacked in verses 6 through 8. Because Jesus was willing to take the form of a servant to humble himself to the point of death. God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So although we may be tempted to tell another person 
about your act of humility in order to receive glory. The true reward for the humble is reserved in heaven. This teaching is consistent with the message of Scripture. Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, that the first will be last and the last will be first. Peter, in his first letter, says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The result of counting others as more significant than ourselves is being exalted by the Father in the life to come. It's greeting Jesus in heaven and having him say, well done, good and faithful servant. When we understand that the chief end of man is to bring glory to God, this type of humility becomes more doable. Just as Jesus was able to carry out his task because he knew that ultimately God would be glorified. When we have the mind of Christ, we will receive the result of that humility as well. Not to the same extent, because none of us will be greater than Jesus, but we will all receive glory from God and share in that reward. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, when all is said and done, when Jesus returns in glory and the nations see Jesus for who he truly is, they cannot help but acknowledge his lordship. We sang it this morning, all creatures of our God and King bending the knee. You see, when all is said and done, when Jesus returns in glory, people will see why Christianity is so unique in that God took on flesh in order to save those who could not save themselves. That God was willing to die on the cross in place of you and me. And although in our day, not everyone acknowledges the significance of that event, there will be a day where each person will see Jesus and see the grand story of redemption that he played an instrumental role in. And with echoes of Isaiah chapter 45, the nations will know and they will bow down before his glory. Not because of a great display of strength, but instead because of a great display of willful humility. To God be the glory. As we anticipate that second coming, when every knee will bow, I wonder if following Paul's exhortation in this text would result in those around us marveling at our Lord and Savior. What might it look like if our Savior, your church, were united in one mind and looked for every opportunity to show others their significance? 
I wonder how many non-believers, after being served by you, would wonder, how could they possibly be content only playing the second violin? There's something different about this person, and I have to know what it is. How wonderful would it be to have an opportunity to say to them, it's because of my Lord, my Savior. You think my actions are different? Wait till you hear about Jesus. There are so many ways to practice counting others as more significant than ourselves. And I would urge you to spend some time today thinking of ways for yourself and then put them into practice this week. The more we play the second violin, the more we realize how beautiful playing the harmony part is. Counting others is more significant than ourselves. Looks like becoming a good listener. Growing in consciousness before we engage in arguments. It means intentionally using your free time to serve your neighbor, your spouse, or your children. And then not looking for any praise for what you've done or anything in return, but instead just being content with serving another. Husbands, how great would it be if your wife never had to wash a dish again? Because you willingly and sacrificially take on that chore. Wives, how blessed would your husband be if you asked him every day when he came home from work, how can I help you relax best? Corporate humility means that we put aside our differences and are united to our fellow believer. To the point where everyone in your church can picture a body of believers that is unified around the mission of God. A body of believers who takes part in a meal together and thinks about how they can fulfill the Great Commission. Humility looks like sacrificing social capital to share Christ with your coworker, your neighbor, or your family member who does not yet know Jesus. Your Heavenly Father hears the harmony part that you're playing to support his melody, and it makes him glad. In conclusion, Paul calls Christ's church to live a life worthy of the gospel by making his joy complete. The means of making his joy complete is by considering others as more significant than yourself. This is what I want you to remember from this morning. To exercise humility by counting others as more significant than yourself, just as Christ did. We heard the exhortation. We saw the example, the mindset of Christ. We saw the result, which is exaltation. Church, the story of God is a much better story 
than the story that we try to write, where we are the main character. In humility, let's remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on our behalf. That we have the ultimate example of humility. And Lord, we we pray, we admit that we fail to exercise this type of humility. I pray that you would give us strength through your Holy Spirit to help us walk humbly and to show others how great of a Savior we serve. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.